Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I can't believe it's only Tuesday. Maybe that's because I, my head is already hurting today. Uh, our guest today is Will Salatin from Slate Magazine. Will, I'm I'm really sorry. I, but by the way, good morning. <laughs> good morning to you, Charlie. I'm sorry to get started like this. I should have known better that right before we started this, I I looked at the Twitters, and and I saw the statement from uh, the former guy about uh, the passing of Colin Powell. And it's one of those things where, like, please, God, tell me this is a parody, but it's not. Okay, so I don't know if you've okay, seen so it. Okay, so I'm entirely trusting you on this one since I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States. Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if even that always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes. But anyway, may he rest in peace! Exclamation point. <laughs> it, see, the onion needs to go out of business. I mean, how do you, how, 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 do, how do you write parodies? He wrote that. I mean, you can tell he actually probably dictated that, right? I, right. Well, I, I hope that we've, uh, look, it would be great for our country, for the world, nice. if, if we can get to the sort of uh, humor stage of uh, dealing with the former guy, like where these things are funny instead of scary. Um, yeah, they're, they're funny, but then you realize they are scary, right? Yeah, I mean, that's seriously, like I <laughs> was just looking the other day at like polls that, uh, you know, he Trump is polling almost even with Biden in a head-to-head, -head, oh, you know. Sure. No. It's it's alarming. It is. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a moment. Um, I just want to talk about vaccines for a little while because this also, my... My head was hurting even before I read the Trump statement because uh, this, this whole culture war over the vaccines, which has been going on for some time, it feels like it's 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 reached a new stage of crazy. So let me play for you um, a soundbite from Dennis Prager, the head of Prager University, a syndicated talk show host. Um, at one time, a really well-known, respected writer, a Jewish ethicist, and I, I have to I have to confess right up front here. Uh, I used to sit in as a as a backup host for Dennis Prager's radio show, and until I don't know 2016, I thought he was a completely reasonable, rational human being who's just completely fallen off the table. You know, stop me if you've heard this story before. Uh, but Dennis Prager announced yesterday that he is uh, he tested positive for COVID, and this is what he wanted that he's actually been trying to be infected because th this is and so he's been hugging people and he's been trying to do it. But listen to this, and, and I'm going to follow this up with Tucker Carlson talking about uh, Colin Powell's death. Um, and, and, and just we'll keep in the back of your mind, I'm going to ask you the question, you know, who's the more reckless guy here, uh, Dennis Prager or, or Tucker Carlson? Uh, and, and, you know, spoiler alert, I don't think there's a right answer. Anyway, here's about two minutes of Dennis Prager explaining his theory and philosophy of contracting the coronavirus. I'm broadcasting from my home because I'm not going into the station as I have COVID. I came, uh, I was tested positive last week, and I have uh, been uh, steadily improving. At no point was I in danger of hospitalization. I have uh, received monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies. One. That's Regeneron. I have, of course, for years, a year and a half, not years, been taking hydroxychloroquine from the beginning with zinc. Of course. Stayed. I've taken Z-Pak, the yes. er, 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 erythromycin. Three, four. As uh, the Zelenko protocol would have it, I have taken ivermectin. Of course. Yes. I have done what a person should do. Well if one is not going to get vaccinated. Uh, it is infinitely preferable to have natural immunity than vaccine immunity. Okay. And that is what I hoped for the entire time. Hoped for. Hence, I so uh, engaged with strangers, constantly hugging them, taking photos mm. with them, mm. knowing that I was... In it, making myself very susceptible to getting COVID, which is indeed as bizarre as it sounded, it what does. I wanted. It is bizarre. 
in the hope that I would achieve natural immunity and be taken care of by therapeutics. That is exactly what has happened. It should have happened to the great majority of Americans. The number of deaths in this country uh, owing to COVID is a scandal, which one day will be clear uh, to Americans. I'm just going to hand the mic to you, Will. So <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm done. I'm going for a walk. I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's really hard to know where to begin with this. The guy ends with that. The number of deaths in this country to COVID is a scandal. And, uh, it, of course those people got COVID and died of it by doing exactly what Dennis Prager did, except less deliberately. Right. So he's basically telling everybody go and get COVID. So you'll have natural immunity knowing full well, as he says at the end, that that has killed 700,000 people in this country, at least 5 million around the world. Unbelievable. Well, also, it's interesting. He runs through all of the drugs he's willing to take. He's willing to put everything in his body, the dewormer stuff, the all of this stuff, but not the vaccines. He doesn't really explain why he's willing to take everything else except the vaccine, right? I mean, it's not like he's... A Christian scientist or anything, right? I mean, he's he's not he's not saying that he's waiting for God to heal him or or whatever. It's it's like no, I'm going to take everything. I'm going to take zinc. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take the ivermectin, but I'm just just not going to take that uh, Moderna shot. I yeah I, okay. And just just for the record, of course, for people who are listening, monoclonal antibodies. The, I mean, the, most of the, what he said is complete garbage. But yeah, monoclonal antibodies will will help you once you've got it, but they're like $2,000. Um, they're, um, the vaccine is somewhere south of a hundred. I don't know where it is now. It's pretty cheap uh, free. And, you, and free for you. Yeah, free. Right. So, so you could, you could wait and risk going to the hospital, but risk being too late for the monoclonal antibodies and go that route. Or you could just go get the vaccine and be safe. So it's kind of an easy call. All right. So that was that was Dennis Prager. Um, this is Tucker Carlson last night who decides that he's going to try to score some points against vaccination uh, by talking about uh, the death of, of Colin Powell, who was 84 years old and suffered from a form of uh, uh, cancer that dramatically reduces the efficacy of uh, of the uh, of, of the vaccines. You'll notice that he doesn't mention uh, the fact that, that Colin Powell had the cancer. But anyway, here's, here's Tucker Carlson. Like almost everyone his age, Colin Powell was fully vaccinated against COVID. And yet, according to his family and doctors, Colin Powell died of COVID. Of course, that fact does not make his death any less sad, nor is it unusual. Many thousands of vaccinated Americans have died of COVID. Former CDC Director Robert Redfield announced just today that about 40 percent of all recent COVID deaths in the state of Maryland, for example, are among those who have had both shots. So what does that tell you exactly? Well, it tells you you've been lied to. Vaccines may be highly useful for some people, but across a population, they do not solve COVID. That's not speculation. It is an observable fact. People who've been fully vaccinated can still get the virus. They can still transmit the virus to others, and they can still die from COVID. Colin Powell is hardly the only example of that. So the question is, why are they telling us otherwise? And the answer is simple. They're telling us that to divide us from each other, to set the country against itself. Yeah, sure. That's 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 really what it's all about. It's not because they're trying to save lives and give out medical information that would be valuable to vulnerable populations. So, Will Salatin, uh, who, who who's more reckless here, Dennis Prager or Tucker Carlson? <laughs> Uh, I, I feel like this is the old, uh, who is, who, uh, Ken S. Mas Macho, right? Uh, yeah. I can't, I can't adjudicate between these two guys. No, uh, they no. each, each in his own way. Uh, can I just take Carlson for a minute there? Yeah, please he, go. He, he, Run with okay. It. So he says the conclusion from Colin Powell, having had this breakthrough infection and died of it is, uh, he says, this shows that across the population, the vaccines, right. that was his phrase, do not solve the problem of COVID. So Carlson is smart enough to know that he's lying to you and the, the, he's misleading you in a fatal way. And here's how he misleads you. Across the population means that for some people, some people are more susceptible to breakthrough infections than others. By and large, if you get vaccinated, you are not going to get a breakthrough infection. Some people are susceptible. People like Colin Powell, people who 
have uh, underlying medical conditions that weaken their immune system. Age is a factor. Blood cancer is a factor. Um, and I was just talking to a friend the other day who is in this situation who got two doses of vaccine. The vaccine did not boost his antibody count because he has these underlying conditions. The third dose did, and Colin Powell was about to get his third dose, mm -hmm. and that could have saved him if, he had, if the timing had been different. But the point is, the, the, you, ordinary person, should get vaccinated. It will protect you. Plus, it will protect you when you are with a person like Colin Powell, like my friend, who is immunocompromised, right? So you're getting vaccinated for yourself because the vaccine will protect you. And you're getting vaccinated for the Colin Powells of this world who need you to not give them the virus. And that's the key point. Remember when uh, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, my old friend, was saying, why should you care whether anybody else gets vaccinated? If you're vaccinated, why should you care? Well, that's the answer um, that Colin Powell obviously came in contact with somebody who did have COVID, who was uh, who did then infect him. And one of the reasons why we do this is because we don't want to infect and sicken and perhaps kill people who are vulnerable populations. This would be, I guess, in, in answer to my question, I, I agree, it's kind of hard to choose between Dennis Prager and Tucker Carlson. I'm going to have to go with Tucker because his audience is so much bigger. And because his dishonesty is so, I mean, it's so palpable. I mean, the sophistry, the way he twists and turns and misleads and the fact that he knows better. Look, Dennis Prager is just, you know, he's nutty and it's, it is reckless. There's no question about it. Talking about going around and, and hugging people. But I'm guessing that Dennis Prager thinks that's the right answer. I don't know, whatever. I, Tucker Carlson, I, I guess what really bothers me is I, I think that at some level he knows the game he's playing. He knows the logic chopping that he's going on. He's knowing how he is leaving facts out and that he's conflating, uh, you, know, you know, like with unlike. Uh, and, I, and, and, and what he's doing is he and other Fox News hosts and Rupert Murdoch and the whole Fox News operation needs to be held responsible for this. They are feeding this anti-vax mentality out there and they're turning it into something completely unnecessary that somehow this has become the Declaration of Independence and the way you, you express freedom as opposed to a reckless thing, you know, a reckless choice that is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and I, I, I agree with you. And it's, a, it's symptomatic of this decision that a lot of people make, uh, that I am on this side. I, here's my political identity and those are my enemies over there. And a lot of Republican conservatives decided that Anthony Fauci was the enemy and that Joe Biden was the enemy with, with along with Anthony Fauci. And whatever they say, whatever the government, this government is saying, we're going to attack it. Right. So Carlson's decides that he's going to use uh, the Colin Powell case to to say that you can't trust what you're hearing about vaccines from the government, from Fauci, from any of those people. And, yeah, you can play that game. But you, you, you'd have to sort of set aside the fact that not only are you being sneaky and misleading about it, but you're going to kill people. You're going to cause a lot of deaths as a result of that. And that's just unconscionable. Yeah, yeah you can play that game as long as you think it's a game. OK, so a couple of weeks ago, you wrote you wrote a piece how Joe Biden is winning the culture war over vaccines by singling out the anti-vaxxers as public enemy number one. So there's no question about it that there is a culture war. Um, make the case why you think this is something that that, that Biden and the pro-vax forces are winning. Okay, for, I, want, for, I, want, I, want, I want to agree with you, but I just I'm not convinced at this point. So okay, but for, wait, no. there was one more thing that I wanted to say oh, about sure, the two sure. cases, so, Go ahead. which is yeah. I, I, I want to put those these two cases together: the Powell mm -hmm. case and the Prager case. Yeah. Here's Dennis Prager talking about how he went around hugging a whole bunch of people, and in his own description, as you played for everybody, in his own description, it's all about him. It's all about him taking a risk, him wanting to get infected, him wanting to protect oh, himself, yeah. right? Which is nuts, but. In the course of this, imagine that if one of the people that Dennis Prager hugged was Colin Powell, okay? Powell, I'm sure, wouldn't allow it to happen. But, like, but, but the whole point of it is 
that Prager is in his sort of obsession about himself and his drama has like, in, has, you know, is endangering other people and he doesn't know it, right? He doesn't know until he tests positive. In fact, he doesn't know until he had symptoms, right? That he was infectious, but you're infectious before that, right? So we don't know how many people Dennis Prager infected and we don't know who infected Colin Powell, but they could, those kind of cases can easily come together. What makes it worse, of course, is that Dennis Prager has written about ethics, takes ethics seriously. And, and you're right. It's all about him. Uh, it's not about whether or not the people he's hugging, that, you know, that he might sicken them as well, what the consequences would be. OK, so actually, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, that what, if, what if it had been Colin Powell? All right. So talk to me about the cultural war over vaccines and why you think why you think this is a losing hand for the Tucker Carlson's and the Dennis Prager's and the Ron DeSantis's and the Greg Abbott's of the world. Okay, so the Republican Party has a long tradition of finding some segment of the American population that is um, uh, alleged to be, or it sometimes is dangerous, right? Um, but even even when it's dangerous, they mischaracterize it, they broaden it, they create a stereotype. So um, they've done this to a whole bunch of you know people over the over history. But famously, they've done it to um, gay people, um, saying that you know they're going to cause moral, moral rot. Their marriages will destroy our marriages. They've done this to Muslims, not just, you know, uh, sort of crazy, uh, radical Islamic terrorists, but like ordinary Muslims, like misrepresenting them as a threat. But when you get to, uh, what, what's happened with COVID is that that has turned around, right? There is now a population of Americans who are genuinely dangerous to others, right? They are literally infectious. Um, they are people who get infected because they are not, because they have refused to get vaccinated. Now, here is a straightforwardly immoral behavior. That is, I'm, as in the case of Dennis Prager, whom we were just discussing, I'm not going to get, I'm deliberately not going to take advantage of this free vaccine that would make me non that would protect me from infecting other people. And those people, Right. The, Joe Biden is saying and a lot of others are saying a lot of Fortune 500 companies, a lot of employers, a lot of Americans are saying, look, you need to get vaccinated. You haven't done it yet. We're going to mandate that you get it. Um, and for whatever reason, the Republican Party has decided, no, the unvaccinated mm -hmm. people, the deliberately unvaccinated people are part of our base. So we will defend them. So here is the one group that is doing something genuinely immoral and dangerous. And the Republican Party, instead of being the party of morality, has decided to be the party of let it all hang out, man. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really sit well on them, does it? I mean, they, uh, you, you're right. I do think that there's, there's genuine anger against the, the unvaccinated. Can I go back to another point we were talking about, about the third shot, though? Yeah. And, and the role of government, I, just yesterday, my, my wife and I were, were you know, going on the Walgreens website looking to see when we could get our booster shot or, or, or third shot or everything. And realized, of course, because we're Moderna uh, vaccinated that we're not eligible to do that because of the FDA, because the bureaucracy is dragging its feet. So, OK, I'm very, very angry at the anti-vaxxers, the people who are unvaccinated. I think this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. But I, I'm feeling growing frustration about the bureaucracy. Like it is, you know, past the middle of October and we still do not have approvals for these boosters or these third shots yet. Um, where's the approval for children uh, who are in school right now? And I, I keep asking the question, what is the FDA? I mean, how many tens of millions of test cases do we have to have before the bureaucracy has a, some sense of urgency in moving on all of this. And I, I, I have to say that I find myself getting as frustrated, probably not as frustrated, but certainly, you know, parallel frustrated about uh, the bureaucracy. As you point out, that third shot might have saved Colin Powell's life. If these boosters are necessary or the third shots are necessary to save human lives, then what is the culpability of the bureaucracy in not moving ahead more quickly? Well, I think the the bureaucracy is adjusting a little bit. Like I, I think we're, I think recent decisions have moved a little faster than the earlier decisions, and you can certainly see, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's complicated because, like, take take Fauci for example. Fauci has, for the last three or four months, been out in front of these decisions, basically going on TV and telegraphing, look, it's coming. The booster approvals are coming. Um, the approval for kids is coming. And they're doing this sort of before the, uh, the official decision is made. It's almost like part of the government is trying to drag the rest of the government. I mean, we got in this habit when Trump was president of like 
worrying about, you know, the, the White House, the administration, in, quote, interfering in science, interfering in decisions of the CDC or the FDA. And now that Trump is out of the way, in some ways, we've sort of had a clearer idea of, okay, well, we, we, do, we don't want to interfere with science, but bureaucracy is, is part of this equation. And bureaucracy does move slowly. And sometimes you do have to push bureaucracy. You know, in terms of uh, push, you know, Trump talked about how he told, what was it? He told the FDA or whatever, you know, you got to get on the stick, you got to approve this stuff. And the FDA said no. And everybody said, you know, let's stand by the FDA. But, you know, there is a case for urgency. I mean, that's why we have emergency authorizations, Charlie, right? The emergency well, authorization exactly. process is for <laughs> It's what the word emergency is about. <laughs> no, I, again, I, this is this is one of the things where I keep, you know, looking at the calendar and the death count and going, if you're really not going to move things up um, in, in this circumstance, when would you do this? Okay, so because I this this gets me too. too and yeah. just to be clear on the record that, you know, the uh, we, we just had the announcement within the last day, right, that the uh, or it was not an announcement, but the FDA is going to approve the mix and match, so right, you'll right. be able to get your. No, your, I, your, I know. Your I just and and then then it'll be it'll be all right. So you're a well known theologian, right? I mean, you <laughs> you, you studied theology. I, I no yeah. no no no, uh, me neither. But I was going about to move on from the vaccination stuff, but I can't. Um, you, you saw the Dan Bongino thing where he says, you know, if, if, if Cumulus Radio Network requires me to get a vaccination or lose my job, I'm out of here. What bullshit, first of all. He's probably already vaccinated. But, you know, th this again is the feeding this, you know, don't you tread on me by, you know, helping save my life. But the weirdest thing that I've seen um, is from the Federalist. This is uh, Ben Dominic's, um, Dominic's, uh, publication, um, Mr. Megan McCain, who somehow continues to be treated like a serious intellectual, but leave that aside for a moment. This latest piece is, is beyond parody. It's written by uh, Joy Pullman, the executive editor of The Federalist, dying, and the headline is dying from COVID is a good thing, basically. <laughs> I'm just taking a deep breath here. God decides when we die, not COVID. Okay. Um, and then here's the, the, the deep dive into theology. Christians believe that life and death belong entirely to God. Fine. Then there's a sentence. There is nothing we can do to make our days on earth one second longer or shorter. And then quotes the Psalms. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it quotes St. Paul. And then it, she concludes, for another thing, for Christians, death is good. Death is good because it gets you to heaven. Now, I'm going to leave it to the professional theologians to work out this, you know, the details here. But I'm, I'm thinking that even St. Paul would see the value of things like seatbelts, medicine, surgery and vaccines, this notion that we can't do anything to make our life longer or shorter. I mean, there's sort of that know-nothing quality of, I, I, I appreciate the religious sense that we are all in God's hands. On the other hand, God gave us intelligence, right? God gave us doctors and hospitals and drugs and medicine and penicillin, I mean, all these other things. And yet this is the kind of stuff that's going out there in the right-wing media ecosystem. And the Federalists embracing this, death is good, so therefore what? what? What are the implications? So if you're a Christian, you shouldn't do these things. You should welcome death. Your death, or going back to Dennis Prager, possibly causing the death of other people who may not share your theological point of view. It, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I can't, Charlie, I can't add to that. That's that's <laughs> just like, and by the way, nobody who says this believes it. Nobody no. who says, nobody who says, I let nature take its course. Uh, my life is in God's. No, these people would never say, you know, the Federalist would never say, you know, you know, it was just God's will that so many people got left behind. So many uh, uh, Afghans who helped American forces <laughs> got left behind in Afghanistan. They, of course, say we could have done something about it. Right. So you know, people are just selective about this stuff. Well, if, if, if death is a good thing, then abortion must be wonderful for these people. Right. I mean, I don't even don't even try to get into their heads. Okay, so let's talk yeah. a little bit about uh, Colin Powell, and you know, I, I'm struck by a couple of things. Number one, um, you know, the, the way he's being remembered as a, a statesman and a soldier, and how uh, anachronistic and archaic the concept of statesmanship is. Uh, also, the the bipartisan uh, praise for him, uh, but also you are seeing the you know the divide in in our, in our culture. So on the left wing. Uh, you know, he's being attacked as the day he dies as a warmonger uh, because of the weapons of mass destruction. On the right, uh, you're getting the same sort of thing. Well, you know, 
he he died as he lived, you know, trusting the experts and the bullshit from the people like uh, uh, like 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 Tucker Carlson. So, you know, I suppose there was a time when we would observe a little bit of a of a, of a you know pause, decent decent interval after someone dies to attack, but uh, not with with Colin Powell. But give me your sense. I mean, Colin Powell does it feels like a as you read about him and think about him, kind of a throwback to uh, a different era of, of politics. And, and he really is, I mean, there's no hyping this guy. I mean, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the mistake that he made, but the way I think that his whole career, his whole life kind of redeems that. But give me your take on Colin Powell. Yeah, I mean, Colin Powell was an institutionalist, right? I mean, he literally came up in the United States military. He he was he's always been about bringing people together. Uh, it, whether whether it was in the military, whether it was uh, in in uh, leadership in the government, uh, his post his post government career, he's been a, and he's been about for he he Colin Powell was black. He brought together people across races. He brought people together across parties. He was going to be like the Republican who was going to be sort of bringing, you know, uh, Democrats into the fold. Um, But he wasn't about winning, right? He was, Powell was the opposite of Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump's idea was, I'm going to go in, I'm going to identify a group of people who are going to be my base. I'm going to call everybody else, you know, evil, and I'm going to set them against each other. And Powell's idea was, what can I build here? How can I bring people together? How can I make America more unified and stronger? And the other thing that people forget about Colin Powell, Colin Powell admitted his mistakes, right? He screwed up about the weapons of mass destruction. He didn't lie about it. He got it wrong. And then he later said he, he admitted, right? So it, it, people, there are no human beings who don't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The question is, what do you do when you get something wrong? Do you lie about it like Donald Trump and never admit your error? Or do you correct it and try to help everyone else, which is what Colin Powell did? It, it's also interesting to read the historical accounts of the time when Colin Powell was nearly the future of the Republican Party. <laughs> it seems odd to say that now. He was sort of prematurely, though, um, an ex-Republican, uh, at least for some of us. But you know, back in 1996, there was serious buzz about him running for the Republican nomination for president. And, and Reagan himself apparently was a big Colin Powell fan. There were polls showing that the Colin Powell might have beaten Bill Clinton in a general election, but it wasn't going to be because, you know, the right wing poobahs of the era um, vetoed him um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and then he chose not to run. But, you know, it is one of those what ifs of history when you think that Ironically, the Colin Powell at one time could have been, but we're not talking about a, you know an Earth 2.0 alternative future for the Republican Party, and and that this party is now totally dominated by Donald Trump when it was once the party of Colin Powell. That's kind of an historic, you know, in- interesting, you know, flex historically. Yeah, yeah, and you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about that. What. What, for one thing, what would have happened in this country if the first non-white president had been a Republican? Yeah. Um, that A military man, I mean, would that have changed? Would the Republican Party not have gone off the rails and become as, in my opinion, racist as it has become today? I, I, I don't know. I would like to think that something could have been different. I mean, I'm very happy. I liked the Barack Obama as president, but um, there's no reason it couldn't have happened earlier. No, and and it, it it could have happened, but of course there were back then there were litmus tests, and I was reading one of the accounts of all of the uh, the conservative leaders that were vetoing Colin Powell, and the, one of the big issues that killed him was uh, was the abortion issue, and that that was at a time when if you deviated, um, you were out. But some of those same leaders, when Donald Trump came along after a lifetime of being pro-choice, they, they didn't have any problem with him. And of course, uh, Colin Powell also then a- after January 6th was very outspoken, uh, saying he could no longer call himself a Republican. And, and he did endorse um, multiple Democratic candidates for president. But um, and that's, of course, why Donald Trump is calling him a rhino. Hey, speaking of Donald Trump, <laughs> the, the soundbite from uh, Senator Cassidy um, sitting down with uh, Axios over the weekend. Uh, talking about uh, Donald Trump running in 2024. I mean, I, I, I this is one of those, and, and again, I'm, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself for the listeners of all of this, but Republicans had so many chances to take off ramps. They had so many chances. But by now, you can't say 
that the Republican Party is a hostage situation because they have willingly put themselves into bondage, right? I mean, they have made the choice that we are yours. We're going to go along with you. And there are now all these reports of people saying, you know, privately, hey, we're kind of kind of worried that this this Trump thing might actually hurt us because he's saying crazy things like, well, hey, if only people had warned you about this. And, you know, we had all these opportunities. So, so here's uh, Senator Cassidy uh, over the weekend. I want to get your reaction to this. You assume President Trump runs in 2024? Uh, he's certainly saying that he's going to. Whether he does or not, we don't know. If he runs, he wins the nomination. If uh, he I don't wins. know that. President, president Trump is the first president, in the Republican side at least, to lose the House, the Senate, and the presidency in four years. Elections are about winning. Um, so That's super interesting. You think that if he ran, he could lose the nomination? Well, if you want to win the presidency, and hopefully that's what voters are thinking about, I think he might. It's clear you ain't voting for him. Um, he, he, uh, I'm not. Okay, so that's Senator Bill Cassidy. You, you, your, your thoughts, Will Salison? Well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. I mean, I like Cassidy in the sense that he stood up uh, on impeachment uh, this, on the second one. The um, and the, you know Liz Cheney and and Kinzinger and all those folks, and I, I give them credit. But I have to say this. Yeah, think about the the conservative party in the United States the way you would look at the conservative party in another country and ask yourself this question. What would they do if a strong man came to power? Well, we already know the answer, right? We know the answer that in this country, America, um, the conservative party completely knuckled under to this guy and there was nothing he could do that could stop, including a, attempting a coup, that could stop them from supporting him. And so I don't have, I don't see why I should have any confidence that the Republican Party as an apparatus, the people in power, uh, the, uh, w- w- would stand up and, and oppose a Trump nomination. Now, conceivably, somebody would start some moot grounds. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't see any courage there. And I see them doing exactly the same thing they did before, which is rationalizing exactly. why they should fall in line behind him. I completely agree with you. I admire Bill Cassidy. I, I respect his courage there. But when he suggests that there's a possibility that somebody could beat Donald Trump for the nomination, I think he's delusional. I mean, I just what what possible bit of evidence do you have that they're not simply going to roll over again? I think that they're in the position of sort of thinking, well, something will come along. Somebody will stand up against him. I, by the way, I lived through this back in 2015 and 2016. You have a uh, baseball crank over at National Review who's whose great uh, anti-anti-Trump line is, well, maybe he'll die, you know, so we don't have to actually do anything or take any stand. So, uh, no, I, I I agree. All right, let's, I want to talk about just some of the political maneuvering that's going on, the the whole mansion cinema stuff, uh, the uh, Democrats wrestling with the idea of police reform, uh, Steve Bannon being uh, the subject of a criminal referral today. But let's let's do this first. Thanks for listening to today's Bulwark podcast, and a special thank you to all of the Bulwark Plus members. We launched Bulwark Plus a year ago, and I don't think we really had any idea back then how fast it would grow or the kind of challenges we'd all be facing in the post-Trump era. If you've been listening to us or reading our newsletters, the in-depth pieces on our homepage, you know that we are committed to telling you what we think in a thoughtful, non-tribal way. But we're also not going to pretend these are normal times, and we're not afraid to try to make a difference here at The Bulwark. And we intend to keep fighting because the challenges to democracy are more urgent than ever. None of this would be possible without your support, and we're very grateful. If you haven't signed up yet for Bulwark Plus, please consider becoming part of The Bulwark community. And if you already have, thanks. We think you're in great company. Okay, we are back uh, with Slate Magazine's Will Salatin. So, first of all, just give me give me your sense of where we're at on the reconciliation bill, because I, you know, o- over the weekend you had this, you know, sniping back and forth between Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin. Uh, the progressive media seems to be absolutely obsessed with um, vilifying uh, Kirsten Cinema, and I, and I guess you know part of it. I guess I'm a little frustrated by this because I'm I'm frustrated by you know the the political gamesmanship, but also the 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 tone of so much of the coverage is there can't possibly be any principled reason why a moderate would be a moderate, and I I, I just don't think uh, this has been a constructive debate so far. I'll uh, just throw it over to you now. 
Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so the, the, look, uh, let, let me just step back and put a, a general, a, a general perspective on this, my general perspective, which is there is not, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, the, the Democrat, the debate among the Democrats is about how many trillions of dollars to spend, right? There's no debate about the first 1.5 trillion. They can have that. That's on top of the 1.9 trillion that went before COVID relief and, you know, the related stuff. And, 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 and it's a down payment, right? They could do more later. So th- it's completely insane that they're like going nuts and tearing their hair out and attacking each other over what comes after the first 1.5 trillion. This whole debate is completely warped by the feeling among Democrats that they will never be back in power or they won't be back in power for another 10 years. And therefore they have to program 10 years worth of spending Mm. right now. I mean, Joe Manchin's position is sort of, I'm willing to spend this much. I'm a little scared about spending more than that. Let's wait and see. A normal political situation would be, let's commit this much money and we'll, you know, we'll fund these programs and then we'll take our case to the voters, right? And we'll say, look, Mm -hmm. this is working, put us back in power, reelect us, and we'll do more. It seems to me that the half a loaf or third of a loaf thing is exactly the way they should approach this. Yeah, that is normal politics. I I guess also the, I'm going to get your reaction to all of this, the the real focus on the campaign contributions to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin that somehow they have been bought, they've been paid for, the, there's a, sort of, you know, the, you know, that they are sellouts. Look, I, there's no question about it. The campaign finance can distort the agenda, but it seems like almost kind of a cheap and lazy way of analyzing all of this to simply assume no good faith whatsoever, no legitimacy to the arguments, no legitimacy to the normal politics you just described, that it all must be the fact that, yo, you're a bought off whore. And I, I wrote something, you know, somewhat favorable to Kirsten Cinema, or at least like, hey, you know, hear her out here, or don't follow her in the bathrooms. And I'm getting all this, what, are you getting big pharma money too? You sell out prostitute. It's like, whoa, whoa. It's like, I mean, money's important, but I don't know. It, it just it seems like it's become kind of a crutch as opposed to actually confronting the arguments to the extent they're being made. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. And it's not just happening on the left. You know, uh, this weekend I saw on Sunday, I saw Ron Johnson, the, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, doing a rant about uh, he and Mar- Maria Bartiromo doing a rant about big pharma and that somehow yeah, the, the stuff of, you know, like ivermectin works and, you know, monoclonal antibodies or exp- I, it was all about how, you know, we shouldn't trust the government on vaccines because it's all about big pharma. And A, it's wrong. And B, as you say, it's cheap and easy. And it do- it allows you to sort of not deal with the substance of the argument. Right. Like, let's take Joe Manchin, right? Joe Manchin wants to means test uh, all, all, all government subsidies, right? And he wants to means test the child tax credit. When we can have an argument about at what level you should means test it. $60,000 of income in West Virginia isn't the same as 60,000 in, in New Jersey, right? So like that, that's a substantive argument. Instead, we just get this sort of mansion is bought and paid for stuff that bypasses it. And, and it's, it, it's bad for our, you know, national conversation about what we should be doing. All right. So uh, you, you have you have a uh, very provocative piece about uh, Democrats and police reform today um, that uh, let me let me just set up this way. I don't know if whether you've seen this new Suffolk uh, Boston Globe poll on the question of defunding the police. Haven't. Um, it, it's really interesting and it's kind of a good way to set up your piece. And it really in, in sort of one question, you get a sense of how disastrous defunding the police is, but how, in fact, people are open to some kind of police reform. So the question was, when it comes to the Boston police, and I assume this is a poll of Boston voters, uh, when it comes to the Boston police, which of the following three options comes closest to your opinion? Uh, defunding the police um, in order to reduce their power, 10%. Uh, I believe in a strong police force, but we need to reallocate police funding into mental health and social programs, 56%. Uh, I believe the police need more funding and support to better protect our community, 25%. So I'll just turn this over to you. Clearly, the slogan defund the police gets no traction anywhere, including very liberal cities like Boston. But people are open to, hey, there are some things we can do to make the police work better. Right, right. I mean, policing is a very practical job, right? You're trying to reduce crime, make people safer. 
Um, it's exactly the kind of area where we should be able to have a, a less ideological, more practical, you know, uh, discussion. So defunding, right? So it, unless you're one of these people who think who by defunding, I actually don't mean taking money away. I just mean like funding mental health services. Well then say that as that poll shows, right? It's very popular. People are sensible. They understand that like there are things that police have to deal with right now that we, you know, there, there are homeless people. There are people who are drug addicted and we'd be better off with, you know, drug rehab for a lot of these situations or social work. Um, and, and that's fine. You don't have to threaten police or sound like you're threatening police to do any of that. So there's a lot of support for that. There's support for spending money on non-police solutions to a lot of society's problems. And there's a lot of support for police reforms. There's support for banning chokeholds, for banning no-knock warrants, for requiring officers to have body cameras and for those to be activated, for having independent investigations of uh, officer-involved shootings, a registry of um, police misconduct. There isn't one right now, a national registry. Um, and, and there's a lot of support for allowing lawsuits in particular situations where officers do things that are wrong. So there's a lot of consensus. If we would just get away from this madness of defunding police that by the way, represents the sort of far left, but does not represent people of color in this country. They do not support that. Well, so why did the bipartisan negotiations over police reform fail? Well, what, what killed it in your mind? Well, the, 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 the simplest answer is that the Republican senators would not agree to enforce change. You know, the, like for example, there was an agreement that we need to sort of stop chokeholds, right? The chokeholds right. are dangerous. The Democrats wanted to use the grant making process to enforce that. You know, if the, if a police department was flouting the rule, you would not get a, the grant. And the Republicans decided that that counted as defunding. Now, to me, that's nuts. Yeah. You're, it's, it's a federal grant, right? Um, it's in addition to whatever other money the police department has. To make that conditional on complying with rules that we should all be able to agree to, to call that defunding, that's just dishonest. So I agree with Cory Booker and not with Tim Scott about that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a bad faith argument because, of course, there's lots of legislation that ties funding to certain things. Um, highway funds were tied to speed limits at one time, uh, various other safety things. Nobody said that you're defunding the highways by doing these kinds of things. Um, but, but what about the role of police unions? It strikes me that there hasn't been enough attention uh, to the, I would say, the deplorable role of uh, police unions on all of these issues, that they have been pushing back against the accountability measures. Um, they have a tremendous influence in Republican Party circles. And m one of my just gut senses was that Republicans walked away from this reform bill because the police unions just wouldn't buy and wouldn't go along with it. Yeah. Now, there's differences among the various police unions right. about what they would accept. But can, I don't know if, if anybody has proposed this to you before, Charlie, but can we have just sort of a national deal? Let's a national exchange. Republicans agree to to let go of the police unions or let go of worshiping whatever the police unions insist on. And Democrats will agree to do the same about the teachers unions, right? If we could cut that kind of a deal, we could make policing and <laughs> education so much better. I, I am in that. I, I would, I would go for that in a heartbeat because, and, and this is part of the kind of, it, it breaks the, are you pro union or anti-union? Well, let's talk about which unions and the role that they have in fact played. Um, I do think that, you know, and, and again, this was sort of the reversal here in Wisconsin with Act 10, where, you know, Scott Walker targeted the teachers unions, but completely left the police union alone, which um, was, in fact, as cynical as it looked. OK, speaking of cynical, Steve Bannon uh, committee today, the January 6th committee is going to uh, vote on a criminal referral for Steve Bannon refusing to cooperate. What's interesting is that you know, Steve Bannon is is really a much more central figure in all of this than I think we had originally understood. Uh, we have a piece in the Bulwark today about how it's pretty much out there in the open what he's been doing. This is a a coup and laying the uh, laying the groundwork for future coups that is not being done in you know dark alleys or in basements with guys you know rolling their own cigarettes. It's it's on podcasts. It's on a radio. They're making public appearance and and Steve Bannon is front and center. So. Your thoughts, do you think that the Biden Justice Department will go along with uh, criminal charges against uh, Steve Bannon for refusing to cooperate? 
I think they have to. I mean, I, I, I mean, Bannon is essentially testing whether the United States will will uh, will enforce its laws about co- cooperating with investigations, and particularly one around you know an attack on democracy, on an attempted coup itself. And and as the Bulwark article pointed out, I mean, there's stuff that Bannon has been doing since then. There's also the fact that you know a day before January sixth, Bannon was saying stuff that indicated right that gave some sort of an initial basis to believe that he knew what was coming. Um, uh, and, and you, people like people in that position and people who, I mean, Bannon was close to, he was involved with, you know, the people who were talking at the Willard hotel, I think. And the, the point is that he might actually have information relevant to the planning of the coup attempt. And there's basis to believe that. And he, he has to testify and for him to say, no, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just def- going to defy Congress. That's literally, you know, contempt of Congress. And, uh, if we're not going to throw the book at him, you know, then people are just not going to cooperate with any of these investigations and our government won't be able to protect itself. I do think that principle is at stake here. I completely agree with you here. And I, I certainly hope that Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice understand this, that that really, if if they don't go ahead with this, first of all, it shuts down the January 6th committee, really, in, in effect. But also it does establish this larger principle that you can, in fact, um, be above the law, that you, that you don't have to cooperate with any of these investigations. So uh, I, I think that's going to be interesting. Of course, yesterday, uh, the former president filed a lawsuit against the National Archives uh, trying to block the release of January 6th uh, documents. My guess is that that's more about delay than it is a, a serious substantive legal argument. Your take? Um yeah, actually, wait, can I, can I just, can I sure, make a, a related point on this? That, yeah, um, yeah. that this week, I believe it was this weekend, uh, Joe Biden did a, an event, event. He spoke about, he was speaking about fallen police officers, right? It was a yeah. tribute to fallen police officers. And Biden made the point, right? That like, it, if you believe in law and order, you need, you need to, you need to be on the side of the police officers Man, who no risked shit. and in some cases gave their lives, right? To protect the country to protect our democracy on January 6th. What we have in sort of the January 6th uprising and Kevin McCarthy and others saying, well, let's just forget about that. And uh, now Bannon defying uh, Congress, defying the investigation is basically the Republican Party saying that it doesn't believe in law and order, except when it's black people who are, you know, protesting in the streets, when it's white people who are planning an insurrect, a violent insurrection and executing that insurrection and then trying to excuse it and, and, and prevent, uh, prevent it from being investigated. Then in that case, suddenly the Republican party doesn't give a damn about police or about law and order. I think that's a very powerful message. Do Democrats understand it? Are they going to be comfortable with pushing that to go right at the you know, traditional strength of the Republican Party uh, on law and order, because clearly there's a there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. Uh, the the position that the Trump and the Republicans have taken um, on the insurrection and on the the violence against police, uh, the whole Ashley Babbitt thing are they are they going to be able to do that? I mean, do they? I, I'm I'm having a hard time imagining the Cory Bushes of the world doing it, but I can certainly imagine Joe Biden doing it. Yeah, I, I don't. It remains to be seen. As you know, Charlie, that's not what Democrats generally do. Right? right. They, they don't know how to. They don't know how to take that side of these issues. But if you just look across the board at what the Republican Party has done, right, basically successively abandoning every principle that it claimed to stand for, that essentially renders those principles vacant. Right? There's a vacancy waiting there. The Democratic Party could move in and say, "We are the party of law and order. We will enforce uh, these subpoenas. We will make sure that this attempt to overthrow our government." Is is, um, is prosecuted. We will be the party of morality. We will tell you, we will speak frankly about people who refuse to get vaccinated and endanger others, that they are a menace and that, you know, we need to protect ourselves from them and mandate vaccination. I just don't know if the Democrats have it in them to do that. Well, they really ought to give them some good advice. So what else are you uh, looking at this week? What are you watching, Will? Oh, heck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, uh, what else was on my list? I can't even remember. What's what's on yours? Well, see, this is the problem uh, because I, I sometimes get locked into the things that I'm obsessed about, which I think are pretty obvious um, and sort of miss some of the other things. I also think that the Democrats need to do a better job of marketing their social ideas like the child tax credit. I know that there are some polls out there suggesting the child tax credit is not necessarily as popular as they might have imagined. But I think this is another area where I think that they can steal a march on Republicans in terms of being pro-child, pro-birth, pro-family. And I think this is also one of those areas where, and I've said this before, 
I thought earlier this year, if there was going to be any sort of a bipartisan compromise from coming together, it might be on issues like that. I, I guess I'm very disappointed why nothing has ever come of that moment where Mitt Romney is proposing a robust child tax credit, Biden was proposing it, and you could imagine them sitting down and working out some kind of a compromise, and that just seems to have evaporated, and yet I think that's a fantastic issue on its merits, but also, I think, politically for the Democrats. Yeah, well, the Democrats are are generally, you know, I think of political parties the like personalities, right? There are things that progressives are good at and things they're bad at, and conversely for conservatives, right? So the child tax credit is something where Democrats are happy to talk about how we're helping your family, but sort of the, the way that Republicans talk about that kind of thing, about the, the, the strengthening the family unit and the family is the foundation of society and the fabric of everything. That's, there's a lot of appeal to that, the visceral sort of cultural appeal and Democrats just aren't that comfortable with it. Right. I mean, they don't want to offend anyone. They don't want to offend non-traditional families. They don't want to offend people who don't have kids, uh, people who aren't coupled, um, but you know, it's just, it's just, it, the opportunity is there for them and they are, they're reluctant. The, uh, the border is another area where like, I know, you know, so. the de Democrats just, they're not comfortable with it. They're not comfortable with telling people who, who weren't born in this country. Sorry, you have to wait and go through an immigration process. Um, the, what Biden, I forget what just happened. I think they're basically apparently adopting some of the remain in Mexico policy right. that, that yeah. the Trump administration, that they don't, they don't quite want to say that, but you know. Some of that stuff was working. The Democrats obviously see that there was some inhumanity that resulted from some of Trump's policies, so they're uncomfortable with any association. But like border enforcement is something where Democrats could step in, and they're just not that comfortable doing it that way. Well, and also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, um, because I, I know that uh, there was a lot of uh, controversy around around Biden staying with the stay in Mexico uh, policy, but they were doing it because that's what the federal courts had ruled they had to. So in, in some ways, they're they're complying with the court orders and then they get blamed for doing it. So they're in a very bad situation. This is one of the real, I think, dilemmas for uh, the Biden administration because they're being hammered from the left and the right. And I don't think that they found their footing on this. I mean, yeah. I, for, for, for the reasons you just described. Yeah, they have and they're not and they're not comfortable. You know, one of Biden's biggest problems on both on the border and on child tax credit and on on basically everything he's done. He's he's not he, he's a nice guy. People like him. He's kind of Teflon, but he's not good at driving a message. And he's really not good at what Bill Clinton was really good at, which yep, is yep. telling you constantly what we've done for you. I mean, if mm. you look at polling, people have so many people have no idea where they where they got um, the various you know COVID relief from or tax credits from. They have no idea that they admit that the Biden administration is responsible. I mean, Donald Trump was terrible at governing, but he was terrific at claiming credit. And Joe Biden's just not good at that part. No, I th I think you're right, um, Wilson Allison. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.